Hello and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members, exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Today, we're going to be looking backwards at the process of decolonisation and reconstruction in the borderlands of Burma and China in the post-war period. These frontier border areas were hotly contested after the ravages of war, caught between the last gasps of dying colonial empires and the modern ambitions of aspiring nation-states. They were often populated by ethnic minorities who found themselves caught up in larger geopolitical policy debates that engaged with new concepts such as development and welfare. Here to discuss these issues with me is our guest, Dr. Andreas Rodriguez from the Department of History at the University of Sydney. Andreas is a China specialist with particular interest in the southwest borderland regions, including the border with Burma or Myanmar. Andreas, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Andreas, your research looks at what you call the dilemmas of early post-war reconstruction in the Sino-Burmese borderlands. What is it about this region and this time period, with Burma and China rubbing up against each other and really trying to determine the division of space and people, that drew your interest? I'd like to start by talking about the idea of a dilemma. And I think one thing we want to keep in mind is that it's one thing to think about how we defeat the enemy in World War II. It's not to think about what do we do next once the Nazis and the Japanese Empire have been defeated in the particular context of Asia. So this is really fascinating period. It's a moment, it's a very unique moment, where a new world order is emerging, but it's not really clear what this world order is going to look like. There is no single blueprint that can tell people, can tell political leaders which way the world should go. There is one thing, though, that is very clear, and this is very clear from World War II, and that is decolonization. So one thing that is clear is that empire is on its way out. The British Empire is beginning to leave, it's beginning to pack its suitcases, but that does leave a very big dilemma. What is Asia going to look like once the British and other imperial powers, European powers, have left the continent? We're going to be looking at what took place in these borderlands post-war, but could you give us a sense of what the political landscape looked like at the start of World War II in Burma? It's really important to understand that, and it may sound obvious, we obviously can't understand the early post-war period without really thinking about what was happening during World War II, and particularly maybe those years leading up to World War II in Asia. So one thing I'd like to clarify, I think, for everyone, for our SEAC community out there, is that from the China perspective, you know, we would argue that World War II really begins in Asia in 1937. That is the Japanese invasion of China. And that has very important ripple effects for the rest of the region. You know, in many ways, the British, the French, they know they have their days numbered, or at least their position becomes much more shakier when it comes to the rise of the Japanese Empire in both East Asia and Southeast Asia. So if we think about Burma on the eve of World War II, be it 1937, be it 1939, Burma's already being sucked into this vortex of war, but also prior to that, we need to think about anti-colonialism. Anti-colonialism is a very powerful force for this period. You could argue that even back to the 1920s, this is a very 
powerful force, moving masses, moving intellectuals. And again, when we look at Burma, the Burmese elites are looking in various directions. Some of them look at India. Some of them look at the anti-colonial movement there. Some of them, of course, begin to look at Japan, which again is beginning to develop a very seductive policy that is calling for the ousting of European colonial powers out of Asia. So in many ways, when World War II begins, when the Japanese, in effect, begin to occupy other parts of Southeast Asia, we know that they wreck the colonial political apparatus of Burma, right? We know that this is a very humiliating chapter, if you are, of course, on the imperial side of things, in which we see the evacuation of not only British officers, but also those populations that came in during the colonial period, particularly those belonging to India and so forth. So the question, of course, is, well, what about the Burmese elites? And, of course, what about those who live in what we call the frontier areas? And this is, of course, setting the scene for what will become a problem after 1945. We know that the likes of Aung San and so forth, they actually see in Japan potential allies. They see them as liberators, which, of course, you know, may be a cynical ploy, but in many ways, there was something to be said about Asian identity, a pan-Asian identity that felt much more... I guess, confident in rising up to what was seen as a very unjust world under the empire of the British and the French, of course, in French Indochina. And of course, the other problem, of course, is that those frontier regions, those populations that, of course, don't identify themselves as being part of ethnic Burmese, they, of course, have an ongoing history of loyalty towards the British. So when World War II, in effect, comes to Burma, when the Japanese come over and occupy Burma, Burma becomes divided. Right? So that division that was already in place under British colonial administration, the Japanese in many ways exacerbated as well. One of the defining characteristics of Burma then and now is its ethnic diversity. So to the southeast near Thailand live the Karen people, to the east of the Shan, bordering Yunnan in China. And then there is the Kachin area of northern Burma, which also borders China. And of course, many of our listeners would be aware of the Rohingya people who live mainly in the north near Bangladesh. And there are many others I haven't mentioned as well. What was the impact of this diversity on the British colonial administration in terms of the policies they tried to implement to manage these diverse heterogeneous populations? There are a few things to remember here. In the way that I've said that the post-war period is a fluid period, I think the idea of what Burma looks like on a map in the early 20th century, even the late 19th century, is also a very fluid one as well. So the idea that comes up in 1947-1948 as the Union of Burma was certainly not the idea entertained by British colonial elites during the late 19th and early 20th century. In many ways, you could argue that British colonial officers applied a divide-and-rule policy. And what they did, geographically speaking, was to bound those areas that we would call frontier, those that are on borders with what we now call the People's Republic of China, India, and so forth, they were called the scheduled areas. Now, politically speaking, this is very interesting, because this actually meant that politically, they were not part of Burma proper. That whoever ruled Burma proper, be it a colonial administration, with, of course, the input of the Congress, did not apply to how these frontier areas were ruled. So this in, in itself... It's very important to understand these other dilemmas that will come to place in, after 1945. How exactly will this new entity called the Union of Burma govern these areas? How could the British possibly think that this was a sustainable system? How can you be an administration in a country where you've drawn artificial lines around parts that you're just not going to deal with? 
I think that's one of the questions that is still in my mind. And I think we can get a hint of what is on their minds when we look at the debates taking place towards the end of World War II and the early post-war period. So one of the things that colonial officers, and particularly frontier officers, as they were called, the Burma Frontier Force, is, you know, can we give these areas enough autonomy? Can these areas actually be carved out of what the Burmese are claiming to be part of Burma. So while we look back in hindsight and think, well, obviously there was no way going against this, in the 1940s, that is really up for grabs. At some point, we have documents showing that British officers were asking themselves, could we set up something called Karenistan? Which, of course, says a lot about the aspirations, but also fears of what people at the time called the balkanization. Now, balkanization is a very interesting concept to apply to Asia and to Southeast Asia in particular, because balkanization, from a Western perspective, what comes to mind is the idea of how splitting up, for example, the Ottoman Empire will create the seeds of future problems and divisions and hate and even genocide, if we think about what we see later on in the Balkan areas and so forth. So what a lot of historians have pointed out in the 1940s is that a lot of these elites, these new aspiring anti-colonial elites uh, were claiming is that they did not want balkanization. And one slogan, and I, I quote the work here of Robert Cribb and Lee Narangoa, is big is better. Big is better, right? Why would you want to split up, you know, a aspiring nation state if in the end what you end up with is a very fragmented, weak and non-viable entity. And what my initial research shows me is that when British colonial officers go around surveying and speaking to these, what they call the hill tribes, many of the elites of these, at that time were called tribes, were very conscious that it may well be that we have aspirations of political autonomy. Economically, though, this is something that would not really allow us to survive as well. And I think this is the China field person speaking here. When I look at my own research in the in Southwest China on the e-minority people. It's the same type of conversation. These are groups that are not big enough. They're landlocked. They don't have enough population to claim perhaps the carving out of a independent nation state. Hence, what really needs to be debated is what are the terms of that relationship that are going to be written out? And as I will argue, 1945 to 1949, is a key period where those rules are being rewritten, debated. And it, unfortunately, don't always end well. You've illustrated very clearly there that tension or that dilemma, I guess, that these people um, and these areas faced when trying to balance political aspirations and economic certainty and a whole bunch of other considerations that they had to take into account, probably with quite some urgency too, I would imagine. But I just wanted to come back to this idea of the people who live in these regions. And you've been talking about this as a fluid period in history, but how much fluidity was there across these borders? Were they policed? Could people move across international borders between Burma and China? Could they move to other parts of Burma? What happened with the movement of people in this time? That's an excellent question. And it even kind of comes up in my first book to be published, which looks at the experience of field workers in China's frontiers. And what is very interesting is that I think up until the 19, late 1940s, there is a great fluidity in these areas. I think in part because the state, whatever that may be, whatever it may look like, 
is an aspirational one, be it from the Chinese side, be it the colonial one, or even the Burmese one that later comes into place after 1945. And this state is trying to control the flow of trade, of smuggling, of people. But up until the 1950s, it is really largely unsuccessful. And that's something to think about the ways in which borders really become hard in the midst of the Cold War, the 1950s. So again, one way of looking at it is that the state is trying to impose its rules and notions and so forth. But these borders have a, a nature of their own. They have a creativity of their own. And they're trying to sort out problems that in many ways are relevant to the state and yet perhaps you know, try to keep the state out of remove as well. And I think this is part of the dilemma as well. The state wants to have a stronger presence. It wants to have a say in how that relationship is mediated between what it defines as a periphery and its center. So we're talking about the effect of World War II on these borderland areas, and we see these efforts being made to incorporate these minorities. Were these efforts beneficent and an attempt to be genuinely inclusive and representative, or were they more about incorporating and silencing these different voices? Or was it about finding peaceful solutions to ethnically diverse populations and places that did not involve further fragmentation? You know, this is a very difficult question. Maybe common sense would make us think that there is a state, be it Han Chinese or Burmese, that is trying to impose its will against these various ethnic minorities. What we need to remember is that these ethnic minority groups are hardly monolithic as well. They have as many divisions as perhaps the Han Chinese or the Burmese as well. So in the case of Burma, or at least in these areas that we would call the hill tribes, what I find very interesting is that documents that I've looked at until now, they show there's a struggle. There's a struggle of how local traditional authority, I know the word tradition is, is problematic, but we do have these structures of power, the Sabwas, for example, the Shan states. They, of course, have over the years developed a particular relationship with the colonial state, you know, they're trying to work out a relationship with the Burmese. And yet this new language that's coming in Right? The idea of democracy, the idea of the people, the idea of mass politics. They, it may well be that these are terms that are kind of cooked up in the kitchen in cities, but they do make their way to these areas. It does come up in the various speeches and you know, debates that I've been able to track down both in southwest China, but also in the so-called hill tribe areas of Burma as well. So... It's not only about the state versus the frontier. These frontier regions themselves, you know, are also undergoing a very difficult conversation, if that's the right word to use, into, you know, how they should actually position themselves, right? And I think what we see is a generational rift as well. You know, there are younger generations that actually do not see any legitimacy in the authority of the Sabwa. They, and of course, a lot of them have connections and networks with the young Burmese elites as well. And I think there's something very similar we could argue is happening in the case of Southwest China as well. What I find really intriguing for this period is that no one really knows how to put together this idea of the Union of Burma or this new idea of the Republic of China after 1945. And when you look at the very speeches that Aung San is giving and writing, it's like a shopping list. He's looking at, you know, Yugoslavia. He's looking at that photo model. Then he kind of flirts with the Soviet model. And you will see that 
in amongst Indian elites as well. You will find this in various models of Europe. It's really interesting how the world order is being rewritten. And these various elites are looking at each other, trying to see which model might work best. And the Soviet model should not be underestimated. And of course, Burma is interesting in that it did not become part of the Commonwealth. Aung San, given his political tendencies, he is looking around. He has a very good understanding of world politics, and he has a huge task ahead of him. And it's important to remember that this is a period of great democratic aspirations, but it's also a period where these regions are highly militarized. So I think in the end, reaching an agreement was always going to be difficult and most likely to be imposed by force rather than consensus. Mm. And we see the ramifications of the decisions that were made then still unfolding today. So how did it work? How did they go about reconstruction? What mechanisms did they employ? This is what a lot of academics, when they're not sure what to say, they'll say, this is work in progress. So <laughs> I confess I'm, I'm still at an early stage. What I can say is the following. I know from the Burmese side of things that what we need to look at is what kind of experiments were British colonial officers carrying out in these regions. And I know there's some evidence that prior to the outbreak of war, for example, 1937, there were these various so-called enlightened officers who are bringing about ideas of applied anthropology. And again, there's a lot of interesting borrowing of ideas about how colonial administration in Africa, you know, and the use of anthropologists was making its way to Burma as well in the late 1930s. So I think in many ways it says something about the times in which people didn't really talk like talking about colonialism. They used, they very much like to talk about the idea of a developmental state. And one way of doing this among these colonial officers was to empower these frontier people by economic reforms, possibly, I think, in their ways, applying the idea that we need to pull them out of isolation, primitivism, and we need to incorporate them with the world in terms of, you know, industrialization and so forth. Again, this is a debate that we also see with the case of China. What exactly transpired between 1945 and 1948? I'm not really sure how much of these ideas were actually enacted once that process takes place. I know that the ideas were there, the debates are there. I'm not really sure there was time for them to be carried out, which is also similar to the case of China. Once a civil war begins to take place in China for the same period, it's only when the communists come to power, 1949, that the state takes on you know, a much more confident role in rolling out its idea for its frontier areas. So the constitution was introduced in Burma in 1947. What sort of involvement did these ethnic minorities have in deciding whether to be part of this new state of Burma? Was the decision to join the state a pragmatic one or were there economic or political considerations or other tensions that existed in determining whether they joined or not? What I can say is the following. Constitutions, I would argue, are a symbol of modernity in the eyes of many of these elites. And one way of establishing sovereignty was to proclaim a constitution. What we need to think about is that after 1945, there is, again, a global process of constitutions being discussed and promulgated and so forth. So this is happening in India, this is happening in Burma, in China as well. And it involves a lot of mass politics. It involves a lot of various people from all different parts of society that for the first time 
were thinking that they now had a voice that could be heard. How does the frontier fit into this discussion about constitutions? If we do take a look at the Burmese constitution, there are quite interesting takes on what was on the minds of these various elites that theoretically agreed upon what the Union of Burma was going to look like. So if we go back to what I was saying about Aung San, thinking about Yugoslavia, the federal model, then this thing that came to be called the Union of Burma, what it has is a number of mechanisms that theoretically allowed for the voices and representation of these non-Burmese groups. So for example, we have something called the Chamber of Nationalities, right, which had a representation for the Shan state, the Kachin state, and so forth. This idea of the Chamber of Nationalities, I think, begs a bigger question. Where is this coming from? Was this copied from a Soviet model? Was it something that appealed to them by what they saw in the case of China? Was it something inherently a Burmese invention? Was it, as you're suggesting, something just pragmatic as a means to kind of pack them together? So in many ways, looking at constitutions gives us a good idea of what or perhaps was on the minds of people designing the blueprint, but it's also hollow and that we don't really know what is really happening. It's one thing what the paper says, it's another, as we know in hindsight, what really actually transpired. But having said that, I think we need to go back to that idea that I mentioned, that these various groups that live in these border areas, they are not a monolithic block. So some of them, of course, that perhaps become more vocal and that we may you know, kind of taken notice because they were so opposed to the union with Burma, that kind of dampens the light on those who actually decided to play the rules, that actually took part in these mechanisms, that actually took a seat in the parliament and went to the capital city and so forth. So, so there's a story there that I think needs to be told. I'm interested in what you think were the long-term impacts of this process of post-war reconstruction in the borderlands and, and what ripple effects we can see today. So when I look at the ways that China is now reconnecting with Burma, and I think this has to do with these larger debates, which again, you know, raise many eyebrows in Australia about the Belt and Road Initiative, of course, which is this very powerful vision of Xi Jinping to connect China to key parts of the world to ensure not only resources to power the Chinese economy, but it also ensures Chinese influence around the world as well. And Burma, or Myanmar, of course, is one of China's neighbors. So this idea of reconstruction perhaps is, is more significant in that infrastructure, this idea of China reconnecting in a literal and physical sense, will mark a new understanding of how borders are meaningful for both Burma and China. And we know that Burma's border areas, you know, they're very rich in resources. And it is part of a contentious national debate in Burma as to what extent they want their influence in China as well. And I think one way to, to round this off, going back to that period that I was, that I am so intrigued by with, is thinking about the words by a Chinese ethnographer called Reifu, who in 1945, one of the things that excited him is that World War II had come to an end and that the Burma Road, the opening of Burma to China was really going to establish a new Asia, a new regional order. And of course, what Riofi was implying is that with the retreat of the British, with the retreat of European imperialism, China was going to reassert itself in a very different way, or perhaps going back to an imperial way, and that it had traditionally established its influence. And this, of course, was obviously not lost on 
Burmese elites at the time for this period. And that is certainly an interesting point on which to finish and with which to answer this question about the ripple effects that we can still see today in the region. Very poignant indeed. Andres, thank you very much for joining us. It was fascinating. I wish we had more time. And I hope that we can continue our discussions about possibly doing a field school in Myanmar on frontiers. That's on my wish list. <laughs> thank you, Natalie. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.